0: Hello. What book are you reading at the moment? If I asked you to tell me, you'd almost certainly give me the name of the book, the name of the author, and if it wasn't already obvious, the subject of the book. But here are some questions you might not expect me to ask. How well edited is the book? Have you spotted any errors or typos? What did you think of the cover? If the book has an index, was it useful, clever? even funny. Yet, these things matter to our experience as a reader. The process that takes the words of an author and turns them into a book in your hand is, to many people, largely invisible. But it also turns out to be fascinating.
1: Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA.
0: I'm joined by Rebecca Lee, Editorial Manager at Penguin
1: Books and author
0: of How Words Get Good, the story of making a book. How are you, Rebecca?
1: I'm really good, thank you, Matthew. How are you?
0: I'm fine. Really looking forward to this conversation with you. Me too. So it's a bit like a job interview, this podcast, because we always start with a very predictable first question to put people at their ease. And that question is, why did you write the book?
1: (laughs) Well, I have a boring prosaic answer for you and then a slightly more, well, I hope more interesting one. So the prosaic answer is that, I mean, my day job is working at Penguin Random House. and An editor that I used to work with approached me very kindly and pitched the core idea of the book to me. But from my point of view, you know, I I was keen to write the book because my career has basically been a sort of point of connection between authors and the huge range and diversity of behind the scenes publishing. And I thought there was something in the notion of challenging and refining the idea that we often have, that writing a book is a very lonely solo endeavour, when actually it's this huge collective team effort. And I wanted to write a book that gives bibliophiles, so you know, people like me and you, and I hope many of the people listening to this podcast, an entertaining and sort of honest insight into the whole publishing experience um, and that's packed full with little insights and nuggets that make me really love the world of publishing. And I sort of feel like that might suggest that I knew everything there was to know about publishing before I started writing the book. But the truth is I I knew a little about a lot of publishing, but a lot of my experience of writing how words get good was to learn what all these brilliant people behind the scenes are actually doing with their time.
0: Yeah, and it felt as though there was a kind of crusading bit to your book almost, which was you you really want people, when they hold a book in their hand, to be more mindful, really, of what has gone into getting that book. Because we, until I read it, Rebecca, I guess I just had this kind of thought, well, you know, an author writes a lot of words and sends the words in, and then someone put some on paper and stick (laughs) them in the cover, right? And I think there's a kind of sense, I almost got a kind of sense of almost frustration from you that so many people have that rather thoughtless way of thinking about it. And you wanted people when they were holding that book in hand to just have a little bit more of a sense of the kind of effort that has gone into it
1: yeah and i think though you know when i was sort of starting out in my career i had exactly the same thought as you and perhaps other readers do that i didn't really think very hard about how books came to be you know i knew that i love books i knew that i love reading but i didn't spend much time troubling over how books came to be and it just seemed to me that you know an author sat down and wrote their masterpiece and then it probably went to the printer which is very far from the truth and i guess i've been lucky enough to have a career where i could then Learn and explore all those things that happen to words between the author coming up with them and the reader opening a book and sitting down to read them. And it's that kind of bridge that I'm really interested in. So, the book
0: comprises a set of each chapter looks at, you know, some element of this journey, a journey which is different for different books. So, for example, there's a chapter about translation, which obviously only applies to books that have been translated. But, and those chapters are wonderful kind of stories. And very often you illustrate them by having conversations with people who do have that kind of depth of expertise in that particular area. So I want to do some kind of short dives into into chapters that I found particularly fascinating. So so let's start with one that, which I guess I would have expected to be in the book, but I still find it very entertaining. And that was around kind of punctuation and grammar. Now, I I think I would have thought before I read the chapter that this was really about the distinction between what is right and what is wrong. But of course, what is really
1: fascinating (laughs) are the disagreements, which can become kind of quite doctrinal, can't they? (laughs) they can. Yes, I mean, uh, people do like to argue ferociously about their viewpoint on punctuation and grammar. And I don't know, it it often seems to surprise people that I'm kind of quite relaxed about it in general, as long as things are consistent and it works for the reader. And I'm sure there's lots of people be throwing their hands up and saying, this is ridiculous. You know, this person works in publishing. They must have a a strong opinion on uh, the rules of grammar and punctuation. But I think, yeah, so for example, in the book, I talk about this split between I-Z-E spellings and I-S-E spellings of words like realize and authorize and organize. And at Penguin, where I work, our house style, so the way we approach those words in our books is to spell them with an I-Z-E spelling. And many, many people believe that that is an American way of spelling these words, and they get quite angry about it. And it's actually not true. The I-Z-E spelling originally came from England and was imported to the US with the founding fathers. And so it is the correct way, in our view, of spelling these words. But it's amazing how upset people get about just that little switch from an S to a Z.
0: I think your general approach is is kind of liberal when it comes to the the way people choose to do these things, but quite strict on the fact that once you've decided then that's what you have to stick to across
1: the book <laughs> it is that's, that's a good way of summing it up and and I think as well it's just I think it's really important to acknowledge that for a reader you know the conventions of grammar and punctuation are important in that they're little sort of handholds in the text and that I always think that they're one of the ways that you respect your reader is by making it straightforward hopefully for them to read your sentences and to be clear about what you're trying to say and I think that's really important like rather than getting sort of bogged down in arguments about spelling and grammar is is it clear for the reader and is it consistent is it gonna you know that sort of feeling when you're reading a book and something makes you stop in your tracks but you don't quite know why and that's possibly because the sentence is a bit clunky or there's a typo or something just doesn't sort of flow smoothly and I think in my job that's what we're trying to iron out all the time so that reading experience is as pleasurable as it can be.
0: So we can't leave this issue without engaging with the Oxford comma. So (laughs) people in your world know all about the Oxford comma, but believe it or not, there's a world out there of people who have no idea what it is and what the argument's about. Tell us about the Oxford comma, Rebecca.
1: Uh, Yes. Okay. So the Oxford comma, well, it's known as the Oxford comma or the, the serial comma. And if you imagine a list of words with commas, and then you get to the last two words in your list, it's the final comma. In that list of two things
0: but those two things are usually separated by an and
1: yes or, or aren't yeah. they
0: so that's the critical thing isn't
1: it yeah so you may have you know sort of france italy and spain and the oxford comma or the serial comma is the one that comes before and spain and in american english it's completely mandatory to use the oxford comma that's how they always do things and, and I've corrected people, but I've <laughs> all through my life I've correct rather superciliously corrected people and
0: said, "Oh no, you don't have a comma there." And, and then in your book you give an example. I, you know, I'm reading the book thinking, "Well, obviously we're right and the Americans are wrong." And I read the book, and you actually give quite a good example of where it actually is helpful, and it, not to have it could be confusing. So I ended up much more. I ended up like you actually. I ended up much more liberal about it.
1: Yeah, and I think this is like the, the interesting thing about researching the book is you know I think we want there to be sort of certainty about these kind of rules. And there really isn't. And the more you kind of go into it, and the more you research the history of all these sort of quirks and oddities, the less clear it becomes in some ways about, you know, what you should be doing. And so I think if we are looking for certainty, it's kind of impossible to find.
0: And of course, there are certain authors who hate particular types of punctuation. For example, they're just going to never use them, or or love them and use them all the time. And of course, because they're great authors, they, they're allowed to they're allowed to do it. Let's take another chapter, which was another. I, if I had to choose one chapter I love most of all, it would be indexing. Indeed, if, it, you know, if I was doing your indexing, it would be indexing, comma my favorite chapter. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you you seem to take it. Had a great deal of fun writing this chapter uh, as well. You know, the index. I'd never thought about it before, but but it's
1: it's a pretty creative thing. It really, really, really is, and I love indexes. And in fact, my manager at work he loves indexes even more than I do, and he also compiles them. And indexing is fascinating because it requires, I think, a certain mindset. You know, it's very kind of labyrinthine, and it kind of requires like a. A mind like a steel trap but as you say also a lot of creativity and indexes you know there's this phrase that I use you know sort of magical shortcuts to a book so you know if you're standing in a bookshop and you're trying to decide whether you want to buy a book having a look at the index can give you you know a a lot of ideas about the topics in the book and the style and the tone and index can be very funny as well so there's you know there's lots of brilliant examples of indexing humor and sort of you know kind of leaving people out of indexes or, or putting people in indexes and how you describe them. And they're completely brilliant. I mean,
0: oh yeah, you gave examples of books that have had things taken out of them because of libel actions or censorship or whatever, but the reference remains in the index, in the index. like a kind of ghost. Yeah. Yes,
1: it's, it's kind of horrible. You can occasionally be betrayed by an index. So, you know, your index has been compiled and you're ready to go to print. Well, in fact, maybe you go to print the book and then there's a last minute legal or libel change and you sort of congratulate yourself on taking it out of the text and, you know, tidying everything up. But of course, you've forgotten the index. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a cautionary tale. (laughs) And indexing, I thought, was an interesting
0: example of something where, again, before I'd read your book, I would have thought, well, yeah, but that's... That's like kind of slide rule manufacturing. That's an old craft that's gone now. Yeah. You'd only see it in museums because, of course, indexing can be done instantly by yeah. by computers. And this is one of many examples in the book, and I want to come back to this again later on, but one of the many examples where you you say, no, you know, yes, technology can help. And of course, everything has changed. But the art of indexing is not yet one which could be done by the most sophisticated AI.
1: Not at all. And again, this comes back to this question of what is useful for a reader. So, you know, you or I could put a a search term into a PDF of a 800 page book and it might throw up 100 potential index entries for a word but you have to think to yourself is it useful for a reader to be faced with 100 page references for this word and the answer probably is no what you need to do is to break it down into sub entries and perhaps just leave some out because if something's only mentioned once or only mentioned in passing is there any point in putting it in the index and making an index extremely long so indexing requires this level of sort of intervention and very finely balanced judgment about what will be useful to a reader.
0: And then, and I'm not taking the book in, in the order in which it's written, but I was also really interested in the early in the book about the conversation between about agents and editors. So I'm going to talk in a few minutes to record about my pain. And my pain is the, my utter failure to get a book that I worked on for many, many years published. And that gave me a bit of an insight into this. But also I have a good friend who's recently switched from being editor to being an agent now they're different roles but they do kind of overlap in the sense that they are both about i mean the first is about taking a kind of proposal and knocking it into shape but also guiding the I mean, an agent isn't just somebody who flogs someone out there to flogs the book or whatever they're mm. also somebody who guides the writing mm. a way that i i kind of I think when I think about theatrical agents, I don't think about them getting as involved in the content as mm. a literary agent does. So there's, there's more substance to the literary agent role, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I think it's... So I was very fortunate I was able to go and interview some agents. And even though I'd worked in publishing for a very long time, I've you know, I always found agents very mysterious. It wasn't entirely clear what they did. And their, you know, their roles seemed very broad and quite ill-defined. But I, I sort of, one of the things that stuck with me was I, I was talking to an agent called Carina Sutton and she was explaining that, you know, you think of an author and you go along to an agent and you're hoping that they'll take you on and you send them a proposal. And being an agent is not just about, you know, taking any old proposal and trying to sell it to a publisher. It's about being able to make a case that this writer can sustain this story over, say, 80,000 words or 100,000 words that is actual kind of, you know, life and meat in a proposal. It's not just a sort of like, you know, pie in the sky dream about what they'd like to write. There is some substance behind it. And that's really what agents are there to do is to draw out the substance of a proposal and of an author's writing.
0: But an agent will also look at the manuscript, won't they, before it gets sent to the editor. So they will also undertake some of those functions you associate with an editor.
1: Yes, yeah. And I think they would, it generally tends to be more sort of macro level editing, so sort of more big picture and perhaps guiding the manuscript in a way that they hope will be commercial, will deal with topics that are timely, sort of guiding those bigger picture things. And editing, it's
0: often said that the art of editing is in decline, that it isn't taken as seriously as, as it was, that books in general aren't edited as well as they might have been. Do you think that's true? And and is that maybe to do with the fact that in the end, what we ask of editors is, you know, we... Many of our writers are the writers they are because of the quality of the editors. But we all heard of the writers, but no one's ever heard of the editors. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so, are you thinking here of sort of commissioning editors, Matthew? Or well, that's, editors, well, or... let's get into that. Let's get into yeah. the
0: distinction between commissioning editors and yeah. editors and and, and and copy editors. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So, so first of all, you've got commissioning editors who are the people that as a writer you very much want to meet because they're the people that go out that the sort of hunter gatherers um the publishing world so they're looking for new books to buy to publish so they're looking for new trends or they're looking for you know, and for strong writing and for great stories and then you've got copy editors who are sort of part of my remit. And I I deal with copy editors, mostly freelance copy editors, day in, day out. And copy editors look at a text on a much more micro level. So they'll be looking at every single sentence and dealing with the typos and the grammar and smoothing out the structure and making sure it's readable. So the two types of editors work in quite different ways. Commissioning editors make decisions about what gets published. And the other thing, of course, commissioning editors have to think about is you know, financial success of a book or of their publishing list. Which and so it's a constant balance between creativity and you know, commercial success.
0: Yeah, and so my experience and I need I need to say first, I, I wrote a book with my father many, many years ago and edited a series of books for Thames and Hudson kind of short series called Big Ideas and even persuaded them to to publish one of my own in that series. So I, you know, I've I've had things published. But I also wrote a book around a set of ideas that I've become obsessed with over the last 20 years. And I I tried for several years. I had an agent, I wrote a summary proposal, it got half accepted, then not accepted, then I thought, well, this is no good. I actually wrote the whole book and then tried to get people interested in the manuscript. And I I'm sharing all of this because I don't know really. My feeling throughout that process was I desperately wanted somebody to just help me get it right, and it felt as though there were a lot of people judging me. But actually, and I, I even approached people to be collaborators to help me write it, but nobody seemed to be particularly interested in that either. So there was. It's so it's interesting. You you described the process, but yet my experience was almost something slightly missing in this process. It was somebody who would just give up i don't know a month of their time to sit down with me and work closely with me to take i mean you know this is a typical story because my book of course was the theory of everything which must be the you know the most disastrous topic of anything for a book you know (laughs) calm down a bit kind of be a bit more focused but in the end what i wanted was somebody who would just be by my side and take my ideas and help me know how it was i could do something with them and i couldn't in the end i just couldn't close the gap between Mm. what was wanted and what i had and and the other part of this, I'm just going to go on this kind of this rant, but the other part of this is that because I've failed to get my kind of big book published or write any other kind of book, both my books I have been involved in were very short, I have this sense of inadequacy towards authors. But you know what? I meet authors sometimes and they've written books that I think are quite good and I, I ask them about them and, and you know what? They're not always that interesting. <laughs> and that's made me kind of think that there's a particular mindset, there's a particular way of marshalling thoughts and enclosing them. That is necessary for writing a book, and that I'm, and maybe I'm flattering myself when I say this, but I've just got too much of a butterfly mind. I can't, I Mm. lack the discipline. Mm. Is that a story you recognize?
1: (laughs) I mean, all I can talk about is my own experience of writing one book. So, in some ways, you know, I I feel like, well, fraud is quite a strong word, but, you know, the way I got this book published, I was really fortunate. I know, I worked in publishing, I'm surrounded by editors and, and people in publishing all the time. So it's not a typical experience of how to go about getting a book published. And I have to say, I I mean, I wrote How Words Get Good in the first lockdown. And I learned so much about writing while I was writing it, which is really not an ideal way to do, to do things. Because now I look back on it, it's sort of two and a half years later and think, I could do this so much better. And I think it comes down to this sort of, as a writer, I find it very hard to cut my words, to be concise, to take out stories that I think are fascinating but that other people might not. And that sort of self-judgment is just so, so difficult. And I was helped a lot by my wonderful editor who, you know, when I presented my first draft of the manuscript, she said, well, this structure won't work at all. You know, we need to go back and, and rethink the structure. And I was very resistant to that. Of course, she was completely right. I guess what I'm saying is I was fortunate to find someone that could help me bridge that gap. Because I think it's almost impossible to be able to judge your own writing and to sit in the shoes of a reader coming to it cold. Mm.
0: Yeah. I think a couple of conclusions I reach, I'm sure that's that's absolutely right, is one is I think we have a notion in our head that a book is all about inspiration, and it really is mm. much more about perspiration. That that, that really yeah. Yeah. discipline is, you know, is an incredibly important part of, of writing in all sorts of ways. I remember many years ago talking to Barbara Follett. And Ken Follett, incredibly successful author, was having a writer's writer's block. And I said, well, what does he do when he's got a writer's block? And she said, he just sits in his chair. And he just sits every day. And he sits, and he sits, and he sits, and he waits. Because there's so many other things he could do, but the only way to get through it is to just sit there and wait until it comes back, which I thought was quite (laughs) an interesting insight.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I sort of... And doing the publicity for How Words Get Good, I've been asked a lot about, you know, the process of writing. And, and again, I must emphasize, you know, I've written one book and um, so I'm by no means an expert. But I was talking to my partner about the process of writing as well. He's a, he's a copywriter. And we were talking about you know, the sort of tyranny of the blank page. And he said, well, you know, what you have to do is spoil that page immediately, by which he meant just get something down. And I think that's really like crucial. It's just it's very easy to be daunted by the blank page or the the cursor on your you know computer, but once you start writing, it then gives you something to go back and start editing, and start making decisions and judgments about how you can improve what you've written. But the absolute key is to just start getting something down.
0: Mm. I think the other thing that I I concluded about my failed book was. A friend of mine wrote an ebook called How Not to Be an Entrepreneur After His his Failure as an Entrepreneur. And so there's th- things that you shouldn't do if you want to be an entrepreneur. And one of them was fall in love with your first idea. Mm. And I thought that's probably true as well, that part of the difficulty I had was I got overcommitted. And when you're overcommitted to a single idea – people can come along and say look that's really not quite going to work you do need but but you're over committed to it and so you keep really trying to find ways of keeping that first idea going rather than just you know digging a hole in the garden chucking the idea (laughs) and starting again
1: and and I guess that's partly because you know it sounds like the idea you had and you know and indeed when I was writing How words Get Good it's so personal and You know, it's, again, something I've had to sort of learn as a a first time author is to try not to take feedback personally, to have a sense of perspective about it. But it's difficult. You know, I have an emotional connection to the words that I have written and I've chosen those words because I think they're the best words. And it's the only way I feel that I can express that idea. So to have someone come along and say, well, this is not quite right. You know, I, I found being copy edited quite challenging. My copy editor was absolutely fantastic. It's really hard having someone go through, you know, your hard graft and kind of just you know making these suggestions or saying this doesn't quite work and I don't know what you mean here. Like it was like a dagger to my heart every single time I opened the word file.
0: Yeah. And a final thought on this is is a wonderful quote that was given to me, I think, by my friend Adrian, who who said that I think Raymond Carr had a, on his desk a quote from the author Karen Blixen. And I think the quote, as I remember, is write every day without hope, without despair. And I love that quote, because what that kind of carries for me is you write, but the point at which in your writing, you start to think you're a genius, or the point in your writing where you start to feel the whole thing is falling apart, just stop. Stop. That's the point at which you should stop. When your when your hopes get too high, your or you're you're too miserable, <laughs> yes. and you just need to walk away and do something
1: else. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a fabulous quote, and I and I wish I had encountered it when I was writing the book, actually, because I think that's it encapsulates like. It says something really important about writing. And and, as, and it's that trying to keep everything in balance, not get too carried away by the excitement about you know what you want to convey to your readers. And yeah, and not allowing the bad days to, to really grind you down. Because some days you do have days where you're, you're trying to just put a sentence together and it just doesn't work. And it is, I mean, again, it's like, you know, this is why an editor and a copy editor are just so crucial. Because even if you manage to turn in a manuscript where of what you've written is pretty good. There will be clunky sentences that when you have someone point them out to you, you just think, well, yeah, that's terrible. (laughs) I Mm. mean, you know, what was I thinking?
0: Yeah, yeah. One last question, which is about another theme which hovers across the book, which is the digital era. Mm. And, you know really this is a story isn't it the triumph of the book that we assumed didn't we lazily 15 years ago that it would all be ebooks and that and the whole this whole process that you've described really would be kind of disintermediated really that, that everyone could write and anyone could write for anybody who wants to read it but yet it has survived and the book has come back and bookshops have come back so what has changed and changed for good and, and and what do you think will never change? The book ends up with you, really the very final bit of the book is saying, you know, actually, however sophisticated AI is, it will never be the same because a book involves a relationship between the reader and the writer and you can't mm. really have a relationship with a computer. Mm. So mm. this is a kind of theme acro- across the book, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it is. And and I think, so when I first started working in publishing in the early 2000s, nobody knew what was going to happen with digital publishing and ebooks. And it was a time of like great excitement, but also a great panic. You know, obviously we've been working with, with physical books for so long. And as you described, you know, so there was this sort of panic and worry about what this meant for traditional publishing and this sort of brave new world. But what happened really is that We've seen the sort of resurgence of the physical form of the book. So obviously, you know, like most people, I read on a e-reader and hard copies of books. Um, I tend, you know, if I'm on a holiday or commuting e-reader is much easier. But if I love a book, if I love the words, if I love the story, I really want to have a physical copy. And we've also seen this sort of resurgence in very beautifully designed hardback books that are collectible and um, that look lovely on people's bookshelves and possibly that's in reaction to you know these the sort of slightly less emotional reading experience that you have when you're reading something digitally
0: yeah so i've ended up compromising in that i read all my books if i can do in physical form and then i just mm-hmm. i use the e-reader for holidays because it's yes. just much more practical than carry, <laughs> hefting half a dozen books across the world And I guess the other thought in this space that I had when I was reading your book is that we do know what happens when words are allowed to march out into the world without any of these people doing anything to kind of make them good. And that's social media. And that in Mm. many ways is why it is so incredibly problematic.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I think, you know, this, to come back to your earlier point, this, you know, a writer, you know, the sort of skill is to be able to inhabit an emotional sensorium and connect that with a reader, and with AI and computer-generated words, and perhaps things that people tweet. Or you know, none of that is there, and none of the sort of refining of words that editors and publishers do is there. And I think for readers, that that's a real problem, it's, you know, and a real challenge, and it to me, it's always, you know, it's really necessary that we have these people standing between the author and the reader, but that we are all connected by the fact that we're humans and, you know, our words are how we convey our most profound thoughts to each other. Well, I will treat
0: all books, I think, with a little bit more reverence, (laughs) Rebecca. Your book, How Words Get Good, the story of making a book, is incredibly informative, but equally extremely entertaining. Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on to Bridges to the Future
1: thank you very much for having me.
0: To close, I wanted to offer my own reflection. Although I once interviewed a novelist on this podcast, almost everyone else has been a non-fiction author. Now, generally, once we've started a novel, we read to the end. It feels rather pointless to do otherwise. Indeed, novels are partly written to pull you towards the end. But non-fiction is different. Before this podcast, I, I suspect I'd only read the beginning or selected chapters of most of the non-fiction books I owned. I'd given up on quite a lot because they, they didn't grab me. Sticking to them felt like too much hard work. But for this pod, I always read every word of every book we feature. And what I've noticed is that actually quite a lot of the books grow on me as I get further into them. So the next time you start on a non-fiction book and it, well, I don't know, it begins to drag a little, Take my advice, stick with it, and see where it takes you. After all, if it's got as far as being in your hand, quite a few people have tried to make it good. Goodbye.
1: We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.